morning. Welcome to CSIS and welcome to Producing More with Less Through Partnerships. First, just a note, even though your agenda item says we're going till 1 a.m., I promise you we are not. <laughs> we are going until 11 a.m., so don't worry about that. First and foremost, I just want to thank the Royal Embassy of Denmark for their collaboration with us to make this event happen. A special thanks to Anna de Klauman, who is the Minister Counselor for Food, Agriculture, and Fisheries at the Embassy of Denmark. Your vision, partnership, and understanding is what's going to make this today's a successful event, so thank you. Here at CSIS, we're focusing on food security in ways that we have never done before. The Global Food Security Project provides research, analysis, and policy recommendations on how the U.S. government can strengthen its role in global food security. This means that we're looking at the effectiveness of Feed the Future. It means that we're working to elevate the discussion on global food security issues and how they link back to U.S. strategic interests. I recognize a lot of you in this room, so I know that many of you are well aware of our growing population and the challenge we had ahead of us of feeding 9.6 billion people by 2050. We know that increasing agricultural production is not only a great tool to alleviate poverty, but it's essential to support this growing population. Add to that that we have more displaced persons than ever before, that we have many conflicts that are having a devastating effect on agricultural systems where civil strife is happening. You also have the pressures of climate change coupled with the depletion of natural resources. By 2025, two-thirds of the world's population may be under stress conditions due to water scarcity. Sounds pretty daunting, but there are solutions, but it's gonna take a combined effort in order for us to have to address this issue. We have a really good program for you this morning, including some surprises. To start us off, we're going to watch a short video called The Future Isn't As Dark As It Has Been. And it's about the contribution of agriculture, sorry, it's about the contribution that agriculture makes to Denmark's growth and prosperity. There's a, there's a beautiful land of 4.3 million hectares. That's not much, but large enough to tackle a few more big questions, like, who is he? And who is she? And where are we all going? Is there life after the last oil? Will we be swallowed up by the Chinese? Or can we live off their need for a square meal? Would it save the environment if the cows burped less? And what do our Michelin stars mean for the price of pork? There's a beautiful land of 4.3 million hectares. That's not much, but imagine what it could be. Just think, if everything could run on big shit and sunshine, or rain could become more valuable than oil. Think if the whole world backed sustainability. And just think if there was room in that beautiful land of 4.3 million hectares to imagine something much bigger. of experts to get us started today. Okay. 
To get us started this morning, we have Martin Merrill. Martin is a farmer himself, and he was also recently, just a few weeks ago, named as the president of the European Farmers Union. Congratulations. He's also the chairman of the Danish Ag and Food Council and has a long career of leadership positions working on how to improve agriculture. Martin? Thank you. Thank you, much. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you all here this morning, the opportunity to tell you about Danish agriculture, to tell you about the thoughts I've been giving, the, the challenge that we are facing. The challenge that is, well, we can say it in many ways, but one way is to just say that there will be 140,000 more people to feed every day from now on in the next 30 years. And that's in the world where the resources are under large pressure, where we will be facing climate changes that will put a pressure on the number of farm-able hectares. So yes, the challenge is huge. But what have we achieved? What's the experience we have done over the last years? If I should give you a very short and brief introduction to what the way I see it, what happened from the 60s until the 80s was that we changed the way of farming because of cheap, very cheap energy. That meant very cheap and easy access to fertilizer. That meant that manure was not more a valuable product. It was a waste product that we just had to get rid of. Nobody actually thought that was a problem because we could just supply cheap fertilizer. In the 80s, we started the discussion that we were moving the wrong direction. We started to have environmental problems with the losses of nitrogen and, and so on. So we started a new policy in Denmark. We, we started the discussion in the middle of the 80s and new uh, politics and, and new regulation were uh, established in, in the beginning of the 90s. So what we can look back to now is from when we started to really work with environmental regulations of the way we farm we've been able to produce 20% more, 20% more in 20 years. At the same time, we've been reducing the surplus of nitrogen, the loss of nitrogen with 50%, and we've been able to reduce the surplus of phosphate with 100%. So that's what, been, what we have achieved in a little more than 20 years. Can we continue that way? Well, when I see the changes we have been, we have been dealing with, I, I would say, know that we won't be able to go uh, to make just as many improvements as we already had. But on the other hand, as I will tell you now, we are working with a lot of different improvements all the time. And the fact is that it's actually not only worked in research and in uh, laboratories. No, it's working out among the farmers. And the farmers are taking the new technique in use every day. Just for an example, on my farm, we are producing among other things, chickens. When I started the chicken production in 90, while the chickens weighed 1.8 kilo at 42 days, 1.8 kilo at 42 days, now they weigh 2.2 kilos at 35 days. And the birds are just as strong, as healthy as they were. And the feed conversion, of course, has changed several percent in that period. So at the same space, we can now produce eight times of the year when we started in 90, with only six times. Will that continue? Well, it seemed to be unrealistic, but to be honest, I think, yeah, we will be able to. But just to 
give you some examples of how many improvements we are, we are making and how closely the farmers are working with researchers and developers and um, businesses that are developing new agriculture technique. Let's look into a, a dairy herd, a modern dairy herd. And uh, to get a dairy cow, you must start having a calf. To get a calf, you must have the cow inseminated. And that can now be with uh, semen that are processed. So you know, will it be a heifer or will it be a bull calf? That gives you the opportunity that you could give the good cows a heifer calf to be breeding stock. And the cows with less valuable genetics, they will have a bull calf for meat production. That meat production will, of course, be more efficient because you can then use the genes for beef production instead of dairy production. So already there, you are getting more efficiency. And Look at the stable where the cow is. The, the cow will, in a modern stable, be working on slats so the manure can fall through. We found out that there's a lot of evaporations when the cow, cows are walking, walking on these slats. So we realized that if we reduce the area of the slats to half, that will reduce the evaporation. But then we will have a problem to get the manure to fall through the slats. Well, how do we solve that? Well, we have a robot moving around with the cows pushing down the manure 24 hours a day, going easy round. If it hits a cow, it just stops, wait till the cow has moved away. What happened when the, the manure have fallen through the slats? Well, different uh, systems are available. One of them is a simple cooling system so that you, you are actually taking the heat out of the, the cellar where the slurry is. You can use that heat for warming up the farmhouse. Another way is you can let that slurry be moving all the time and mix it up with um, a sulfate acid. That way you lower the emission of ammonia. <coughs> How is the cow being fed? New techniques now show that the feed is not only mixed. That's, uh, that's the technique we established years ago. But now we're not only mixing the total ration of feed. No, now we found out that you not only have to mix it, you really have to also mix water in it so it have the precise the right consistence for the cow. And you have to chop it up so the cow can't sort out the different uh, feedstuffs that are in that mix. So that gives uh, a, a lot easier movement at the feed table because the cows know now they can't cheat, uh, cheat the other cows for taking the good stuff out first. So that have raised efficient, feed efficiency also. Well, then the cow walks in the, the robot for getting milking. And now it's not only fed with one kind of concentrate. No, now the new technique is that we have two kinds of concentrate in the robot. So the robot know exactly on this cow with this yield, how much of this concentrate A and concentrate B also just to get efficiency a little higher. When the cow get milked, we can now, we have the technique now, of course, to measure the temperature, but very soon we'll also have the technique from Danish company called FOSS, that they will get the, the system to analyze the milk, to, to, to do it so cheap that they will actually be able to analyze each individual cow at each individual time the cow is being milked. So any kind of disease or anything that is just about to happen for that cow, you'll be able to get that out when you have analyzed the milk during milking period. Um, yeah, when the, talk about the, the slurry that we either cooled off or put acid in, we take that to a biogas plant, and uh, 
That means that we take energy out of it. We can use that for electricity, for distant heating, or we can use it on the farm, producing electricity, also heating. And what happened? We take the energy out of it. What we get back is a fluid where it's a lot easier for the plants to take out the nitrogen, so that will reduce the losses of nitrogen. And um, also there's a possibility that you can separate the slurry, so you get the thin part to back to the farmer, and then you have the thick part, you can use that for different things. You can burn it as a resource. You can make it into litter material for the stable. Or maybe in a few years, we'll be able to take another process on that and take the alcohol, to take ethanol out of that. Um, this is not science fiction. This is actually what's happening out there. Have we really introduced all these techniques in Danish dairy production? Yes, we have. Not on all farms, of course, but all these techniques, except of the, the, the total analyze of the milk, is actually already introduced. And that had been possible because there had been a very close cooperation between the farmers and those people who are inventing the techniques. Oh. Does it pay off? Well, in the beginning, it, 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 it probably, most of it probably wouldn't pay off and it would be definitely be difficult to get the farmers to make these investments. But there we have been using the, the EU program for rural development. So some of the EU subsidies have actually been uh, put in programs where different kinds of techniques get approved and then the farmer, if he uh, invests in these techniques, he can get uh, a subsidy on 40% of his investment. And cool. most of these investments, I think on the long term, they will be paying off, but to get them introduced and in the period where the technique is still <coughs> on the way to be developed, of course sometimes there is some development costs that should be paid and also to make the companies who are developing these kinds of uh, equipment to, to give them a market, I think the subsidy have been very important. Yeah. So I think the way we have, we have been using the subsidies here really have been pushing the use of new technique ahead and I think we have improved uh, amazingly much over a, a short period because we have been able to, to get this cooperation uh, going and the subsidies have helped it to be introduced earlier than it would have been in, in, in only a free market system. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting, especially how the farmer is engaged with the researchers. I, I'd like to explore that a bit more in our, our Q&A section. But next we're going to go to Dr. Bob Thompson. Many of you in this room know Bob. He's a renowned lecturer and his career has spanned, I never know what to call him, because he's an academic. He used to be the president and CEO of Winrock. He used to work on rural development and ag trade policy at World Bank. Um, he just spent the last four years at John Hopkins. Um, I could go on and on about the, the many ways that, that Bob has been engaged in this industry. And we're so excited to have him share his wealth of knowledge in this, particularly kind of stepping back and, and looking at the big picture and the global challenge we have. Bob? Thanks, Kimberly, and uh, I'm very pleased to be part of this panel this morning. Yeah, I'm going to take the 35,000 foot uh, view. Martin has given us a very good perspective from the farm from the farmer's level, uh, but uh, let me let me talk about the the mega trends that are driving the uh, growth and consumption of food in the world and why we're going to have to produce more with less. You know, if you take the the most recent uh, updates of the population projections. 
that it will add two and a half billion additional miles to be fed in the next 35 years between 2015 and 2050. Uh, that's an increase of the world's population by one third. Uh, the rate of urbanization going on, the UN Population Office is now projecting will go from the present 52% to 70% of the world's larger population living in cities by 2050. This gives us a, uh, a rapid change in dietary patterns as people move from rural to urban areas. And of course, as we have successful poverty reduction, uh, this uh, gives us a big increase in demand for food. Uh, FAO tells us that one out of every nine people in the world doesn't have enough purchasing power to even access 1,800 calories per day not enough to put in a medium level of physical activity. So as, as we have successful broad-based economic growth that lifts the maximum number of people out of poverty, uh, this unleashes a rapid increase in consumption of agricultural products. And so it's, it's not unrealistic to assume that urbanization and successful broad-based economic growth add as much to demand for food in the world as population growth. That gives me the projected increase in demand of two-thirds, a third from population growth and another third from the others. But, what about, but how achievable is this increase in food production by two-thirds? Well, we know that there's uh, uh, significant post-harvest losses. Many estimate it's a third. Uh, let's say we, we could cut the post-harvest losses by half. Well, that gives us a six. Okay, if we get increased uh, production by, or availability by two-thirds and we can get a six, from reducing post-harvest losses, that means we need a 50% increase in, uh, in uh, production coming from the farm. Okay, but when we look at the two principal resources from, uh, on which we produce food, land and water, uh, the best available estimate I can find is that there's 12% more available arable land that's not presently forested or subject to erosion and desertification. Now, we could double the number of hectares of land in production worldwide, but only at the cost of massive destruction of forest, with, which would mean loss of wildlife habitat, loss of, loss of biodiversity, uh, reduction in the carbon sequestration capacity, accelerating global warming, all unacceptable environmental outcomes. So that leads me to the inescapable conclusion that if we've got to produce 50% more food uh, on at most 12% more land, the only environmentally sustainable alternative is to increase productivity per unit of land in production. There may be a bit more land, as we saw, that could be brought into production, but at the same time, every year we're losing more and more land. With urbanization and uh, construction of infrastructure, we're paving over a lot of prime agricultural land. So I would put 12% increase in the arable land as the absolute out maximum possible net increase, and there may be no increase in hectares of land in production. But water is a much bigger concern to me. Uh, the best estimates that I've seen are that there's about 70% of the fresh water used in the world, it's used by farmers in their irrigation. But remember the urbanization projection, that uh, the UN Population Office is now projecting 70% of the world's population will be living in cities. And if 70% of the world's population is living in cities, the world's farmers will not have access to 70% of the fresh water. Cities will outbid farmers for available water. So my, my suggestion is that that 50% increase in agricultural production we're talking about is going to have to come from less total water than farmers are using today. 
less total water, not proportionally less, but absolutely less, which means a really big increase in the productivity of each unit of water that we're using in agricultural production. Now overlay all of that with climate change. The climate change is going to take increase in adaptive agriculture research just to sustain present productivity levels. We're seeing agroecosystems migrate three to four degrees latitude further north away from the equator in the northern hemisphere, three to four degrees latitude further south as you move below the, below the equator. So we're going to, we're going to have to change what we grow in some regions. We'll have to do adaptive research to optimize the technology for the new uh, climate regime, but most importantly, probably the most negative effect of climate change on agriculture is going to be the increased frequency of extreme climatic events, extreme droughts, extreme flooding, extreme tornadic activities, extremely rugged winters. It's the increased variability and the need for increased resilience that I see as the real or as a real challenge. So, Yes, we've got to produce more with less, but uh, with the further complication that we've got climate change actually detracting from present, present yields. Just a brief comment then on why partnerships. I think I've established why we're going to need to increase productivity to produce more with less, but it can only be accomplished through partnerships. Farmers don't have enough resources to do this all. Governments don't have enough resources. The private sector doesn't. It's going to take, literally, all working in, in concert with one another. There are a number of things the, private, the public sector needs to provide, the enabling environment for business, the uh, rural roads, a uh, certain amount of investment in agriculture research. Uh, farmers, certainly, uh, if they have uh, capacity to increase their savings, will, will invest more. But as Martin suggested, they can't do it all themselves with new technologies, and uh, the private sector has a very significant role to play with its investment capital, but that'll happen only if the public sector provides the enabling environment or the positive investment climate. But I'm sure we'll come back and talk about that in more detail, so that's enough for my opening comments. Thanks so much, Bob. That's a great segue, which I think you might have planned that as we, as we talk, as we introduce Chris Bender. Chris is the head of public affairs and communications at Novazine North America. And Novazine is a private company whose mission statement is talking about their producing biological solutions to improve performance while preserving the planet's resources. So he's the perfect private sector voice to talk about, again, some of the challenges we're facing, but also what are some of the solutions that the private sector is bringing for us to address producing more with less. Chris. Cool. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for putting on this event. Our, our company looks to you for things like this in terms of research, and so we appreciate being here. And thank you for, Anna, all the work that you've done. So I was on the Metro this morning coming over. Did anyone else take the Metro this morning? Okay. And I don't know if you've seen it, but they've rolled out these new Metro cars. And you, know, you get on and sort of like, wow. I thought I was in a commercial or something. But I noticed two things immediately that I think are relevant to the debate today. One, there was no carpet on the floor, which sounds a little, I don't know, retro, but I thought it was interesting. And the other thing is that they have these digital displays now on the sides of the metro cars. So, you know, normally you'd get on a metro car and they had all those paper advertisements, all gone digital. And the reason I thought it was interesting is, one, I like digital displays. You know, but the other thing is that it was sort of getting to this idea of doing more with less. You know, Metro does not have a lot of dedicated funding. 
Uh, there's always a problem with them having the money to do the kind of infrastructure and repairs. You know about this because your fares are generally going up. And it occurred to me that organizations, companies, whatever, are all thinking about how do we do more with less. If there's no carpet on the floor of that metro car, they don't have to wash it. They're using less water, they're using less energy, they're spending less capital to do that. And so I think kind of tying into this conversation today, you know, I was thinking about what, what really is the solution, what allows you to do more with less in terms of agriculture and other things. And I think that really is where our company and the type of technology we have comes into play. We have a very simple thought. You know, we think that nature has already figured a lot of this out. And if you look to nature for inspiration, you can find ways to incorporate nature's technology, nature's thinking into industrial processes and do more with less. So as an example, you see on this slide a variety of things that you do in your daily life. You know, you wash clothes, you make food, you drive your car, whatever it may be. And all of the products that you would use to get at those outcomes somehow involve a chemical or a man-made input, right? I mean, think about your laundry detergent. There's some kind of chemical in there that's focusing on a stain or allowing you to wash at a certain temperature. And our philosophy is, you know, in nature, there are naturally occurring proteins, enzymes, that do a lot of these things. You know, they function at very low temperatures, or by their natural state, they're combating things. And so our feeling is, what if we can work with other companies and we can replace some of these chemicals with natural inputs like an enzyme or in terms of agriculture, I'll get to that in a second, like a microbe. And your laundry detergent is a very good example. You know, we were able with our scientists to identify an enzyme that works at an extremely low temperature. And what we have now worked to do is insert that enzyme into the formulation of some laundry detergent. So you can now wash your clothes in cold water and get them clean as you might in hot. And that has the benefit for you that you're paying less money on your energy bill. But you also need less water to do it because you don't have to start the cycle warm and then cool it down. And that's the kind of ingenuity I think we try to bring to everything it is that we do. Caitlin, would you mind just going one more slide? Now, the other thing that we have on the other side of the house is we work with microbes in terms of agriculture, ag biologicals. And I think that goes to a lot of the discussion here today. So again, in nature, there are microbes that do a lot of what it is that we're talking about. You know, allow plants to be more drought resistant, allow plants to require less water, allow them to pull phosphate and other nutrients more efficiently from the soil. And so our philosophy is if we can go out and identify what those things are, we can help farmers get at a lot of the outcomes that we were talking about here, and then we can work towards a lot of the societal change we were talking about on this end. You would talk quite a bit about water. So if we can identify microbes and work with farmers to find ways to apply those to plants that allow the plant to survive on a little less water, then you're saving that water in other spots. And I think that's generally the way we approach this idea of more with less, that nature is doing it. And if we go out and figure out what is actually happening and then apply that to industry, that we can get at a lot of the specific ends on the farm we were talking about and achieve a lot of these societal ends because we're using less natural inputs. We're less dependent on petroleum. We may need less water. And that's the way we approach, I think, this challenge. Great. Thank you so much.
I just want to make a quick announcement for those who might be watching us live on our live broadcast. Um, after I, I, I ask some questions of our panelists, we'll open it to Q&A for the audience, but that audience includes those that aren't in this room today. So if you would like to ask a question and you're watching on the live broadcast, please um, join our Twitter by C at CSIS Food um, and ask some questions and we'll take some from that audience as well as we move on. So to start with, I want to start with you, Martin. Um, I'm, I'm, we, so the, the issue of partnerships in private sector and public sector coming together is, is not a new conversation. Anyone who's been in this world for a while knows that although there's been an increase in them and there's been some evolution and some great things happening in that space, um, it's not anything revolutionary that we've never talked about. But one thing I, I'd like to know is you, as you talked about the farmers engaging with the research, researchers as well as on new innovations, is do you feel like the farmer's voice is being heard in the public-private partnerships that are forming? And how, how can partners that are forming better engage farmers on the ground so that as they're thinking through strategically these new solutions, that they're actually incorporating the voice of the farmer? Well, I think one of the things we have been taking advantage of in Denmark is we have a very strong tradition for advisory service. And the, we have a very strong tradition for that the advisory service also do research and development. And of course that is, is run by the farmers and uh, it's, uh, in, it's on the farmers' premises and it's, um, it's the farmers who are so close to the people who are working with development that, that the results are coming fast. And I think that, that's one of the, the major things when you're working with this kind of development, that the farmers, they are not patient. They want to see results. And those, many of these who are introducing the new technology are small machine manufacturers, and they are the same. They're the same kind of people. They don't want long reports that are being worked on for three years. No, they want, we have a problem. Can you help us work this out? We want the results within six months or so. And, and I think that's a way that, that, that we, we have been able to, to, um, to have farmers who really rely on, on new uh, results and new yeah, research and development. Great. Um, if any of you have been following the news this week, there's been a lot of talk about the new U.S. dietary guidelines. And into that conversation has been around sustainability or you know, maybe how what we consume, how that might affect our health, a healthier planet. Um, so, Bob, I would like to address that towards you. And, you know, is whether it's meatless Mondays or a more vegan diet, or should we stop drinking all or eating almonds because of water issues? But just thinking back to um, the individual level, um, should we be switching our diets in a certain way um, to help the environment? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, the first thing, though, that I, I would uh, respond to those who would have us uh, uh, cut meat consumption at the, as, the first, as their first recommendation is sort of pursuant to one of Martin's earlier uh, comments, is there is very poor feed conversion efficiency around the world uh, going into the chickens, the pigs, the, the beef that we're producing. And, you know, I took feeds and feeding at Cornell Animal Nutrition 50 years ago this fall. And, you know, there's an awful lot of 50-year-old animal nutrition that's not being applied today, not putting enough protein with the energy and the rations. So 
yes, fee conversions are miserably poor in some places, but they could be a lot better. So the first thing I would work on is let's increase the efficiency with, the, with which we use the feed we're using now. Uh, but then uh, for animal protein plays an essential role in, in diets. Uh, you know, we, you can get close to one pound of fish per pound of feed. Uh, in aquaculture, you can do almost one pound of meat per pound of feed with chickens. Uh, you know, perhaps we ought to be increasing the percentage of our meat consumption that's fish and chicken as opposed to, uh, uh, to pork or beef. But I really believe that most governments are going to allow consumer sovereignty to prevail and that consumers will elect to consume some animal protein. And of course, animal proteins play a very important role in, in supplying a, the full range of vitamins and minerals that are somewhat difficult to get with just a vegetarian diet. So frankly, with dietary recommendations, there is weak enough nutrition knowledge out there in the general public that I'd like to keep the dietary rec re recommendations focused on nutrition and let's achieve the environmental objectives uh, through parallel but separate, uh, separate means. So that's, that's sort of my bias. Well, two U.S. secretaries agree with what you're saying okay. this week. <laughs> um, Chris, biotechnology. A lot of people who aren't in our bubble of food security automatically assume GMOs. So let's talk about that directly, and I'd love actually to hear the other panelists as well after Chris's thoughts on this. What is the role of, of GMOs in this, and what, what is your thoughts on how it can be useful? I think the first thing is, I think you have to get people to understand the value of biotechnology general to solving the problem we're talking about today. And I think, um, you know, I'm a policy person by nature. I'm still one of these idealistic people that think policy can solve world problems. But I think a big part of that is education. Mm. You have to educate people that are making decisions and the people that are pressing them in a certain direction that biotechnology is not only valuable, I would like to come back to the education point in a second, but you simply cannot achieve the outcomes we're talking about today unless you're using some of these modern agricultural practices. Some of that may rely on GMO seeds, some of that relies on the type of ag biologicals we're talking about, which are not GMO, but I think you have to impress upon them that there is just not enough land and resource and time to feed all these mouths unless we're using some of these modern agricultural practices. I think that is a, a key piece of it. And I think a lot of that goes to this education point I touched on just a second ago on that. Let, look at, let's look at the GMO debate just in the United States, right? Um, you've had sort of a small committed group of people that to their credit have been able to move the debate along. And why have they done that, right? Because they have been vocal, they have been active, they have harnessed the tools around them in order to move their agenda. And again, you gotta give them credit. So I think if you look at on the flip side, one more point, and, and what you see as a result of that is policy change. I mean, look at the GMO labeling bill that has moved through the House and is potentially going to move through the Senate. It, it started the way I just talked about. It started because states were doing individual things, pushed by some of these committed people, and Congress said we probably should get involved in that debate. So it, let's apply that on the other side of the spectrum. If people that believe what we do are as vocal and as committed and as are uh, active on the education side, 
you're able then to prop up the people that are making these decisions from a policy or regulatory perspective. And we're more likely to get the outcomes we want. So I think to summarize, GMO, biotechnology, it, it, it's essential. But I think we have to make the case about why it's essential. And the case needs to not be made to us in this room. It needs to be made that people uh, who would potentially benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Great. Bob and then Martin, I'd like to hear okay. both your thoughts on uh, this. Yeah. I think it's unfortunate that so much of the public debate on GMOs confuses two distinct and separable issues. On the one hand, you have the research tool of genetic engineering that allows you to identify the function of a gene, go in and snip it out of one uh, parent, splice it into the genome of another, and get that trait that it codes for expressed in the result. With respect to the research tool, every National Academy of Science in the world that's examined it has concluded it was neither safer nor less safe for human health or the environment than conventional plant breeding. The European Food Safety Agency has reached the same conclusion. In France, both the Academy of Science and the Academy of Medicine has reached the same conclusion. The global scientific community is almost universally or convinced of the safety of the research tool. Now, what gets all confused and mixed up in the public debate is who does it. There's absolutely nothing about genetic engineering that says it can only be practiced in the private sector. But people forget that in the late 1970s, when the tools of modern molecular biology were maturing, the United States Congress began reducing public support for agriculture research. At about the same time, the courts gave, gave uh, the private sector the ability to patent genes. And with that, the private sector took off applying these new research tools, uh, but mainly focused on the most economically costly problems of the most economically important crops of the rich countries, the farmers who can pay for the new technology in the price of their seed. Uh, but uh, the tools of modern molecular biology can just as well be used in public sector institutions, federal labs as well as universities, if they're funded. It's just we have so reduced the funding for pu public support for, for agriculture research that they haven't, uh, they haven't been able to apply the tools. So my point, my conclusion is genetic engineering is no, is no silver bullet that's going to solve all our problems. But in a world of climate change, where we've got to really introduce a lot more drought tolerance, water use efficiency, and so on, we're going to need all the tools of modern biology at our, at our disposal. And there's a very high price may be paid if we deprive the world's agricultural scientists of this most powerful tool in those applications where it, uh, it's needed. There's a lot more you can do with classical plant breeding, especially when combined with modern quantitative genomics, but uh, we need the tool of molecular biology at our disposal as one of the tools in our research toolkit. Thanks, Bob. Martin? Well, yeah, I just reacted on, on uh, when you said, Robert, about how much meat we are eating and, and what can we do about it just want to tell you that we had a new political party that ran for parliament in Denmark, and, and one of their uh, programs were that we should, by law, had it forbidden to eat meat one day a week. Oh, by law. By law. And they got 4% of the votes. I, I didn't vote for them. <laughs> As a farmer, no. <laughs> no, but, uh, well, uh, the, Discussing the, the GMO and, and, uh, 
and the lack of ac accept of the technology and so on. If, if you feel you have a problem here, you know <laughs> that the problem in Europe is, is yes. huge. Yeah. And, and why is it so? And, and why is it so that it even seems that the, the more well-educated people be, the, the bigger the resistance is? Yeah. Well, I think we, we'll have to see, in, look it into that period I was just talking about here from the, mm -hmm. the well, at least in, it, it, it was very, uh, very clear in, that the European agricultural policy was a huge success starting in the 70s up through the 80s and 90s. The success was so great that the biggest problem was actually that we were producing too much and the taxpayers all the time were facing with the problem that we were having butter mountains and, and oh. lakes of wine that were supported by the European taxpayers. And that had been the agenda for 20 or 30 years. Oh. And, and it's so difficult for us to, to explain these people who have been seeing the biggest agricultural pro problem in Europe that we have been producing more than the consumption was huh. to, to explain them that, that we have a totally another challenge in, in front of us mm -hmm. and, and that we have to use these techniques to, to, to meet that challenge because if you ask the consumers well they say no to pesticides they say no to GMO and if you interview them they will, they will of course say why should we use new techniques because we got plenty of food Good point. Can I add one other? Of course. Point? You know, you, you talked about meat. I think China's a really good example, right? I mean, that population is booming. And they're just, at this point, is not either enough land, enough <coughs> agricultural productivity to produce the amount of meat necessary to feed all those people. I see Margaret Ziegler back there from the Global Harvest Initiative. They've done a lot of interesting work around this. But so the choice is simple, right? The choice is, all right, so to feed that population, do we continue doing what is being done? And does China the need to start buying pork and beef and poultry from all over the world, which may not necessarily be good for their economy? Or can the animals that they are producing domestically can be fed, direct fed microbials, again, natural things that are in the soil that will allow them to grow hardy, healthier, uptake more phosphate for their bones? Now, when you hear that, again, in China, you would have a reaction to that. But I think, you know, kind of if you think of one of the themes that came across here, you talked about policy, you talked about research. It all sort of gets back to a stable environment. You were talking about enabling environment for business. There has to be an enabling environment where people want to make these investments. And the governments understand that these kind of investments are good for the population. And that comes from push from people like us on people that are potentially not as knowledgeable about what it is we're talking about here today. That goes uh, beautiful into my next question, which is, if you were a US policymaker, what would be the first thing you would do to prioritize, or where would you invest resources um, to address this issue? And of course, there's a whole spectrum of things, from technology to, to partnerships. But, but if, if you were today elected, and this was your new job, you know, which would be the area, and I'll, I would like to hear from all of you briefly, but in, in whoever wants to go first can, but you know, what would, what would you prioritize as far as policy changes, and where would you invest more money? Anybody? I'll start, because I feel very <laughs> passionate about this topic. Um, I actually think, to the US's credit, there's some very good policies on the books. The problem that we face is that they are not implemented with this level of consistency so that folks, whether they are in research, whether they're in the private sector like us, have incentive 
to keep doing what it is that the government would like us to work with them and do. And I'll, I'll give you two brief examples, right? And these are on the energy side, but they relate to agriculture because a lot of the feedstock necessary comes from farmers. So there are these credits available for folks that want to build second generation, first generation biofuel facilities, tax credits, right? But every year Congress lets them lapse. And then every year they either get implemented retroactively or they only get implemented for a year. And if I'm an investor or I'm someone that's thinking about, sorry? They're for uh, biofuel facilities, right? So if I'm an investor and I'm an angel investor, I'm a venture capitalist, I'm, I'm thinking about capital to put in this facility, why am I gonna put money in there? Because I don't know if in four years there's gonna be this tax credit available. So the policy exists, it's just making it longer term. The renewable fuel standard is the second one, and this is relevant to agriculture, again, because we rely on farmers to grow the biomass for feedstock that is converted into these fuels. The policy is on the books, it's very clear, and right now, in short, the, the federal government is tinkering with it such that there would be less biofuel in the transportation fuel supply for the country. Why? What, if you're a farmer, what good does that do, right? it potentially makes you more reliant on farm subsidies if the policy were to go away. So in short, what I would say is that there are good policies available. The question, I think, from the US perspective is, are we going to implement them in a stable, long-term way, such that whatever sector you're in, you want to partner with the government to see the outcome for all of the things you talked about earlier? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. From my perspective, uh, talking from the U US government investment of public resources, the single most important investment we could make is in uh, agriculture research focused on solving the problems of low-income countries, particularly those between plus or minus 10 degrees from the equator. Uh, the, the, many of the poorest countries of the world, uh, really poor farmers who don't have the resources to be able to pay for the cost of the research in the price of the seed they buy, uh, the only way we're going to get the agricultural development in those poorest countries is if there is an infusion of resources into applied agriculture research to raise the product, potential productivity from where it is, but then overlay that with the climate change they're going to confront to, uh, to help them deal with the change agroecological conditions uh, and uh, the increased frequency of extreme climatic events. But reinforcing that, I would use the US government's clout uh, as the largest uh, shareholder in the World Bank uh, to push the World Bank to uh, focus more on rural infrastructure. Certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, in my estimation, there's no greater barrier to agriculture development than the cumulative underinvestment in rural roads. Transport costs are prohibitively high to get fertilizer and seed to farmers and to take their product from the farm to the market, so high that it simply doesn't pay to adopt already available improved technologies to say nothing about those that we're gonna need in the future. And Sub-Saharan Africa is projected to have a 120% increase in population in the next 35 years, the only region of the world to more than double. You throw in popular urbanization and income growth, demand for food in Sub-Saharan Africa is exploding. And we're going to have a real crisis, I believe, if we don't get agriculture moving at a much fa faster rate. But that's going to take roads, and it's going to take research. Great, thanks. And Martin, you have been a politician and a policymaker yourself. Since those days, and where you are now, 
Um, what policies would you focus on um, in Europe and in Denmark specifically to I change mean, things? Just these few comments show how, how huge difference there is on the problems we are facing. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, in, in, in Europe, we, a lot of people still are facing the, the problem as being a problem of producing too much. Mm -hmm. And of course, in a developing country, it's, it's a totally different situation. And, but, but I still think that, that the, the best way to get new techniques introduced is to, to be cl close to the farmer, be able to give advisory service at the farmer's level, mm -hmm. and make it possible to make investments on the farmer's level. Mm -hmm. If it's small farms, small units in the developed countries, well, have programs that are suitable for those and, and not overscale it. So, so let the farmer be the driver. And if we look at the, our part of the world, I think that working with genetics, both on plants and, and, um, and animals, is still yeah. where we can make the, the largest progress in the coming years. And, uh, and of course, I think it's very important that we work on the, that. We work on getting people to accept these mm -hmm. new technologies because we can't do without them. Right. I think you just created a new hashtag, the farmer is the driver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's open it up to questions from the audience. We have a couple of folks around the room with wireless mics, so just raise your hand and we'll, we'll do two or three questions in a row. Um, we'll go ahead and start right here. And please, when, when, you, um, when you ask your question, state your name and your organization. My name is Peter. I am working with farmers in South Africa growing papers to bring into this country. My question probably will be directed to all of you, but more probably to Bob, is um, agricultural production in rural Africa, uh, in terms of yield per hectare, is probably less than one, one ton per, per hectare. Now, how do we increase production in rural Africa? Uh, funding, <coughs> it's not a question of funding, because there's money in, South, in Africa, in pension funds, in mutual funds. There's technology available in terms of improved seeds. How do we engage the private sector and the public sector in making it viable for those farmers to, to grow uh, commercially and viably? I can give a, a small example in South Africa. South Africa is considered one of the best countries in terms of food production in, in Africa, but it's all coming from commercial farmers. Rural farmers are forced to sell whatever they produce to the commercial farmer who aggregate it and sell it on suffix. Because on suffix, someone with two tons has no voice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I think someone else raised your hand right, yeah, right there. Good, mo good morning, my name is Gary Becker. I'm chief economist at Catalyst Partners. Gary, can you put the microphone a little bit closer? Okay, please? good morning. I'm Gary Becker. I'm chief economist at Catalyst Partners. The gist of my question is, where is the demand for reduced input food? We see, for example, like organic foods as being differentiated from other kinds of food. Like when you go to a store, it's touted as being more healthy than other kinds of food. So how come we do not see the reduced input food being differentiated from other kinds of food products? In other words, how do we increase the importance of reduced input foods so that people will see it at the store and choose to buy it over another product? Great. We'll go ahead and answer those two before we take more. Bob, you want to start on rural Africa? 
yes. Um, thanks, thanks for that question. And I think there, there are two things that I think are important. Uh, one is in the agriculture development of certainly Denmark, but also the United States, Japan, and most of the high-income countries, the agricultural marketing cooperatives played a key role in linking smallholder farmers into their market, whether it be the market for smallholders to buy their inputs, their feed, their fertilizer, their seeds, and market their products. Uh, so I continue to believe that the develop, in the developing world, a lot more can be achieved through uh, fostering agricultural marketing cooperatives. But there's also got to be an, an enabling environment, a legal and public policy environment with the rule of law, property rights well-defined, uh, contract enforceability, uh, sort of that necessary legal and public policy environment that, uh, that uh, makes the place attractive for the private sector uh, to function. Smallholders generally have diverse, well, frequently have uh, uh, diverse uh, varieties of their crop, uh, variable quality, often not uh, coordinated maturity dates, uh, and there definitely needs to be a farmer advisory service to work with the farmers along with the, mar the marketing, the presence of the marketing capacity and cooperatives in order to help farmers respond to the realities of today's market that's going to demand uniform size, uniform quality, uniform uh, harvest dates if we're talking about high value per hectare crops. And for smallholders, we need to be talking about high value per hectare crops. Bulk commodities, if you've only got a hectare or two, are never going to be able to generate enough revenue to lift the family uh, out of poverty. Great. Does anyone else want to comment on the Africa? I just have one additional comment, and I think it's very important that the farmer understand the value proposition of moving to some of these modern agricultural practices that we're talking about. It could be, you know, uh, using drones. It could be using some of these microbes that I've been referring to. It could be doing some of these other things that were discussed over here. But I think first and foremost, the farmer has to understand that, become engaged in it, become excited about it. And then they become a natural advocate for moving policy or business environment or partnerships forward. I think a good example is the use of cell phones in some of these developing markets. You know, you see companies now, Monsanto deserves a lot of credit for this, that are getting smallholder farmers agronomic data on their phones. I mean, think about anywhere in the world, right? What's the, the one thing most people have, whether it's a smartphone or not, is a phone. So, if you're able to get real-time agronomic data about weather or changing conditions or soil patterns or whatever on your phone and then make a decision about what you're going to do on your land, I think you're then a lot, A, you're more likely to do it, but I think then you're a lot more likely to turn to others and say, this is really proving our ability to generate food for this population. And I think then that kind of naturally moves and snowballs forward with getting some of these things implemented that we're mm -hmm. talking about. So turning the farmer into an advocate by making them involved in the value proposition is very important. Excellent. Who wants to tackle the low, in, low input food marketing? Anybody? Well, That's a hard well, one. Well, ahead, yeah. <laughs> but, but of course, uh, to, we should produce what the consumers want. Mm. And uh, to look over the, how th 
that have developed over the years, our experience and my experience as a farmer have been, if I look back for the, for the last 20 years, the, the real interest among farmers to, who produ to produce alternative products, that might be organic, that might be some kind of green products, uh, looking into more animal welfare as well. The, the interest among farmers to make these new productions have been much bigger than the consumers' real interest in buying them. Because we have seen a lot of discussion going on that we need alternative products. We like to have greener products. We like to have products that are taking more care of our animals or so. But at the end of the day, the problem had been that when these, these different products were in the, in the stores, nobody wanted to buy them. In the last years now, we, we have a movement that the, the market is now really growing. And, and there is a demand for these products. And, and, and of course, now that's a, it's a lot better situation because now the, the, there's really a market. For, and, and for the farmer's point of view, it's a good situation because now you can really get a price and, and you can get companies to, to help bring these products into the market. Mm -hmm. But for, of course, we should give the, the consumers all kinds of alternative uh, products and the discussion we had it before to get new techniques improved or so, well, I, I think the first thing to do is, of course, to give the consumers their own choice mm -hmm. and then at the same time let, let, let us in the agricultural industry work with the, the challenge that it is that we should not only produce these luxury products because that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. we, should, we should have the, the possibility also to produce a volume for, for the growing population. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, I think that latter point is, is absolutely critical because what we really need is low, lower input per unit of output. And that's what productivity growth is all about. And, you know, it, uh, and the change, at the turn of the century, U.S. agriculture was producing two and a half times more than it was producing at the end of World War II with less total inputs. So total factor productivity had gone up about 250%. So that led to a lower unit cost of production and a, and a possibility for declining cost of food, to the, uh, which benefits principally the low-income consumer who spends the largest fraction of the income on food. So I absolutely agree with Martin that consumers should have a choice. And for uh, high-end consumers, affluent consumers, uh, they ought to be able to buy their food produced any way they want. But don't impose that higher unit cost of production technology on production of food for the masses of impoverished people in the world. The one out of every nine people in the world that doesn't have enough purchasing power to even buy 1,800 calories per day to say nothing about uh, a nutritionally balanced diet. So yeah, uh, produce for the niches, but niches are not for the general population. That's Great. very important. Yeah, excellent. Let's take a few more questions. We'll start with Scott right here. Scott Augenbaugh at CSIS. I'm wondering, based on the conversation we're having on efficiency, if efficiency and development policy towards poverty are at odds in the future. And the reason I say that is we have a lot of development policy focused now on smallholder farmers. And uh, we complain about it a lot in the United States with the de death of the small farmer, but we've had amazing efficiency gains since the 1980s. 
But if you look at rural India right now, India is still a majority agricultural nation um, in terms of where it is now. Most of the development policy is focused on those smallholder farmers. Many of them are going to move in the cities. Are you going to get the same efficiency gains in the future that you need to get to your at least 50% more food just focusing on smallholder farmers? Or do we need to start creating tiers of farms? And maybe the focus is on, in the US, maybe returning to, like I grew cherry tomatoes this summer. It was a great crop of cherry tomatoes. But you know these sort of smaller practices in the US going the opposite way in some of these countries where we had focused completely on smallholder farmers and not mid-sized business. Lisa, you can bring it to him. Yeah. Hi, uh, John Lamb with Apt Associates. Um, for understandable reasons, the conversation so far is concentrated on one kind of uh, change that's needed to spur development, which is primarily technology. <coughs> because we all know partnerships have many other purposes, including access to capital, access to markets, uh, ability to bring in better management practices, and then in a more recent generation, higher level issues like scalability, resi resilience and so on. And at the same time, the, the discussion is concentrated so far on public-private partnerships as if those are the only kinds of partnerships, yet as we all know, they're not. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about several aspects of those, the, the issue of market linkages coupled with intra-value stream partnerships, in other words, private sector to private sector, and tie it in with sustainable uh, development that's based on market incentives and private sector involvement. Uh, and in wondering what you think about moving the partnership discussion uh, away from just concentrating on technology. Great point. I'll let any of you address whichever you want to start. Go ahead. Bill. I'd like to start with sure. Scott's question. Uh, the increased average size of farm has been driven more than anything else by the desire for parity of income for the house, those smallholder households. Uh, there are, about, there are only five ways you can lift a subsistence farm family out of poverty. You can raise productivity, what they're producing today. They'll provide some potential upside to the income. Uh, you can switch to a higher value per hectare crop. Maybe instead of growing uh, bulk corn, you can produce fruits or vegetables or aquaculture. Um, third, you can get more land. If there's land, more land available, it may be purchased, it may be rental, it may be land reform. Fourth, you, one or more members of the family can get part-time employment off the farm, or maybe even full-time employment off the farm. Or fifth, you can get out agriculture. The way we achieve parity of income for farm households in the United States with people living in the rest of the economy is gradually increase the average amount of land available per farm so that, those, so that both those who left were able to achieve a higher income, those who stayed behind because they could have more land, they could adopt improved technologies, were able to uh, uh, also raise their income potential. Smallholders in low-income countries are going to be driven by the same dynamic. They're, uh, the next generation of young people growing up in that abject poverty, in those smallholders in India, they are not going to take an oath of poverty just to continue to be a farmer if they've got any chance of getting out. In the US, we had a public school education system that made it possible for farm kids to compete successfully, to get into universities. And the easiest way to achieve this structural transformation is between generations, not within a generation. So we facilitated that out-migration of rural youth, often into allied professions, like myself. I was raised on a small family dairy farm. 
Uh, I went to college ag economics. I've spent my life working in agriculture, but not milking cows 365 days a year, morning and night, like I grew up doing. Uh, so uh, my point here is that small farms can be very efficient, but you can be having the highest achievable productivity on a smallholder farm and still not be able to grow enough to generate an above poverty income level. So we will not solve the poverty problem without removing significant number of those people from agriculture. And we have to remember 70% of the extreme poverty in the world is rural and most of those people are farmers and the majority of them are net food buying households. They can't even grow enough to feed their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hungry farmers, a very strange oxymoron. Um, what about the other question? Talking about partnerships, I don't know if you could address some of that, Chris, um, for the second question. Yeah, sure. Um, can I add one thing? Of course, yes. Yeah. So I, it's a really good question, actually. And I think as once you stated, I was thinking a little bit about it in, in two buckets. So you have these big agricultural producers, and then you have smallholders, right? I think the big agricultural folks are more likely to make the transition you're talking about towards efficiency because they have economic exposure if they don't. You know, as an example, if they're dealing with technologies or they're dealing with farmers that are using petroleum-based pesticides, they're dealing with the global volatility of oil, and I think as inputs, whatever they are, get more expensive, they want to reduce that exposure. And I think in a way that gets to your question a little bit. So they are more likely to make that switch because they're in a position to A, do it, and B, understand those global dynamics. I think smallholders want to do those things. But I think a lot of time, you're dealing with folks that are on family farms, as an example. Tradition is very important to them. And it takes more to get them to understand the global dynamics at play. So I think both sides are focused on efficiency, right? But I think it's naturally happening in one place, and I think it takes more push to happen in another, I guess is maybe the best way to say that. And I hope I didn't wander too far into the woods there. It just occurred to me as you were talking. So on the, the partnership piece, I, I agree with everything you said. In a way, I was almost thinking you've answered the question, but you're right. There also needs, partnership should not just imply, one, that it's between the public and the private sector. It may be between the private and the private sector. As an example, we have an alliance with Monsanto for the next 10 years to work on a lot of these ag microbials that we're talking about. And basically, our idea is that we would transform agriculture such that when you go get a seed, all that stuff is ready to go. But that's a private-private partnership. And I think uh, you also bring up this interesting point about being full circle. You know, we're focusing on sort of one part of the value chain here, but there's distribution and there's marketing. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, what it takes is an organization like this to convene and bring those individual players together and then focus on an environment and see if some of these things can be implemented at the local level. I think you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. Do we have final comments? One, one, one footnote uh, in your response to Scott, and that is the, the two possibilities are not small and huge. It needs to be large enough so that it has the potential, with operated efficiently with, a, with available technology, to generate as good an income as you could have earned if you'd gone out of agriculture <coughs> into another, uh, another line of work because otherwise you're not going to attract the next generation of farmers. So it's an issue of big enough to generate parity of income. Thanks, Bob. Martin? Yeah, well, of course, I believe in public 
private partnerships because I, I really think that's, that's what built our agricultural sector in, in Denmark and in most of Europe to what it is today. Mm. Because most of the European agricultural policy have been some kind of private-public partnership because it, a lot of the programs have not only been giving the farmers a subsidy, it's also be, been different programs that have been achieving the farmers, the, 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 given the farmers a, a possibility to, to introduce new techniques to their farm and so on. Uh, I mean, when we, when we had the, the, the need for draining systems, well, then, then we had a, a public subsidy to get the, the, the farmland drained, and, and now we're in the situation where we need more nature. Well, then we pay farmers to take some of the poor land out for, for take it in, to, to take it back to nature. And a lot of the new techniques, like I was telling about in my introduction here, well, it wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have the advisory system if we didn't have the advisory system in between the farmer and the university so that the farmer really get the uh, get what he needs on his level and if we didn't have a system where the public giving us by legislation the the, the possibility to take levies on all our products so we th that way can do our own finance of uh, research and development so that the research and develop is is on our premises mm -hmm. well then a lot of these things wouldn't have happened and, and talking about the, the, the development in structure, well, of course, and, and both on farm level and, 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 and maybe even more important on, uh, on the processing side, it, it is it's so, it's so important that, that we work with the structure and, and um, get our cooperatives to work together and get the farms bigger because that, that, that is the only way that we can, uh, we can handle the, 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 the strong um, retailers in the, in the market when we're talking about the, the western part of the world. Right, thank you. So we're going to do something quite a bit different now, a little different for a typical CSIS event. Um, Chris mentioned that one of, one of the ways that we add value at CSIS is convening together very different people. And in this room you have a huge diverse blend of policymakers and development practitioners and economists and students and so what we want to do is a little bit of group work to get you engaged in talking to each other. So at your tables that you're at right now, um, our assistants are going to walk around and hand you all two cards with two questions on it. They'll all be different for at each table. Um, I'm going to give you 20 minutes, which I know isn't a long amount of time. Um, quickly introduce yourselves to each other. You might want to pick one person to be the speaker and talk about the questions that are given to you. Um, some of them are things that we've touched on today and, and some are a little bit different. Um, when we're done doing that 20 minutes of work, um, I will call on a couple of tables. That's why I said kind of pick ahead of time who might be comfortable sharing um, what your question is and maybe some key highlights. You may have come to a group consensus on one answer or you just may want to share some points that people were able to, to bring. So our assistants can go ahead and, and drop off the questions. Okay. Again. Thank you all for participating in that. I know it's a little bit different, but it gives you an opportunity to meet the folks around you um, to see who else wanted to come to this event to talk about this topic. So we, we'll see how, much, how, how well we do with time, um, but I'll, I'll pick a table and I want you to just pick one of the questions that you were asked to cover and just briefly summarize some of the discussion that happened at your table. Who wants to breathe the, be the brave soul to go first? Or do you want me to pick on them? Dan, wonderful. Um, can we go ahead and bring a mic on up for Dan? 
And again, if you're uh, the speaker for your table, please say your name and what you represent, your organization. My name is Dan Silverstein. Uh, I am uh, a strategic, strategic advisor at Heuristic Management. We covered, um, we addressed the um, government policies that constrain the private sector. And I'll just give this very quickly. The general ideas are that um, there's a big difference in how food is moved from areas of abundance to areas of need. Cross-border restrictions play a, a big role. Trade policies, corruption at the border, um, rule of law, uh, which is a, another way of saying not cracking down on corruption. Um, fear uh, and distrust of the private sector, which is justifiable in many instances. Um, a uh, enabling environment that promotes investment in particularly in extractive industries and in agriculture and other uh, industries that are highly subjected to this. Um, and also, finally, um, laws that discriminate against women, land tendency, uh, loan for equipment, education, et cetera. And that, that was it. Great. Thank you, Dan. How about another table? Yeah, right here. Good morning again. This is Gary Becker with Catalyst Partners. We had two questions, but the one that uh, at least I talked a lot about because I thought I knew something about was which innovative, <laughs> which innovative technology do you think will have the greatest success in increasing yields with fewer inputs? How could it be scaled up? And earlier this today, uh, Chris, you mentioned, used the word drone. And uh, that's a technology that I think over the next few years, as we get through some regulatory hurdles, that it will have a tremendous impact on increasing yields. So what the issue is, or what some discussion about drones is the fact that if you have a, for example, a pilot certificate through the FAA, that you can use your drone to monitor the fields for drought to see whether there's, you know, um, mold, for example, or whether the, you need to apply an insecticide. Um, but the idea is you can tailor the amount of usage of the pesticide or of the amount of water to where the crop is, to where it is needed on the field. So, you know, you're really tailoring your input or your, you know, if you need water in one field and you don't need it on the other, your drone will be able to tell you that instead of your prancing through a field in a hot 90 degree weather in Delaware or somewhere. Um, but, but there are issues that we, got, we have to overcome with the use of technology. And the fact is that there's, even today, while the FAA is proposing rule, rules, there's a lot of misuse of drones. And I personally have been in a crowd and I've seen people, hobbyists use drones, and it's like, geez, what's that doing out there? <laughs> Who is that? Or uh, a few months ago in, in California, there were some wildfires and people were using drones to take photographs of the wildfires and they were preventing firefighters from dumping water onto the, uh, onto the fire. So we have uh, issues that while technology is very, drone technology is very good, uh, and like I said, it can increase yields and fewer inputs, we have to figure out what the costs and benefits are of them and move forward. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you, Gary. Another table? 
I'll call you out if you need to, right there in the back. Yes. Sure, Tony, let's wait till we get you a mic so we can hear you. Thanks. Uh, Tony Mikula, I am a Science and Technology Policy Fellow on the Human Rights Commission of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Wonderful. And um, we had the question about what was the most um, critical natural resource and what are examples of how we can maximize to sustain agricultural productivity. Um, it was already given to us, we thought, so we said water. <laughs> and, good uh, answer, good answer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we came up with ideas about um, having better soils, better water infrastructure, better overall water efficiency for the public. So there, you know, we think that there's only a finite amount of fresh water available. Uh, so if you're going to put more at the plants, you either have to have less per plant or less per person. Mm. So uh, that's what we came up with. Excellent. Another table. Matthew? Hi, Matthew Krauss, Partnering for Innovation. Uh, we had a question, which was tailor-made, I think, for me. What are some examples of unique partnerships between farmers, <laughs> the public sector, and the private sector that are yielding results? Um, the table, I think, there were a number of specific examples given. So in general, I think there was consensus that we felt there were a number of examples of this happening. Um, I think we identified that quite often private sector companies are stepping up uh, in the developing world uh, to bring forward funding and support uh, and engaging the smallholder farmers. In the case of my project, uh, which is a USAID-funded program, there is government support uh, bringing forth. I know DFID is also quite active in supporting um, initiatives that are engaging with private sector. So I think there are a number of examples where the private sector and, and public sector have been working together uh, around the world. Um, I think, interestingly, there was less maybe around what were the exact results of those. And I think some of that is it's a relatively new area. Uh, I mean, the public-private partnerships, uh, the GDAs, it's within the last seven, eight years that we've been really focusing on this, and there's a lot more money going into it, and those partnerships are starting to formalize. So I think the challenge is we're not maybe seeing as much the impact or able to talk about it as much as we'd like. I think it's coming. Uh, these projects are on the ground, and they're rolling out. There will be some failure. There will be hopefully more success than failure, and I, I think we'll see that impact certainly on the, the smaller farmer as they are engaged in those value chains. Great. Thank you, Matthew. Yes. Good to see you. We have one female speaker for the table. I'm Sangli, <laughs> and I work at the World Bank. So. The question we discussed was, um, what do you see as the greatest constraint to increasing pro productivity for smallholder farmer in developing countries? Uh, we, agreed, we agreed that um, technology uh, training and education are the biggest constraints for the smallholder farmers in developing countries because, because of a limit to access to um, of these three things, um, they usually cannot receive like uh, enough education about the technologies to develop their uh, farms to the scales they want. Um, and also there are government constraints on land acquisition. Um, usually in developing countries, it's not that um, if you have money, you can buy lands. So they, have, they also have this problem. 
Um, also, another big issue is access to water and energy. Um, so, like for farms, obviously the most important thing would be water, but um, in developing countries, um, a lot of the smallholder farmers that, uh, don't have enough access to water. Um, so that's another big constraint. Uh, and we also discussed like the best, uh, we raised some solutions, um, tentative solutions to these problems. Um, to in increase access to technology, education, um, and um, a knowledge um, about farming, um, like private sectors could be uh, could play a big role. They can, um, like private sector or larger scale farms, could help uh, smallholder farmers to develop their technologies. Also. Uh, the governments or international aids uh, or international developing agencies could um, reach out to small farms um, for training, um, more education, and um, so that in in the long term there will be a spillover of skills to smallholder farmers. Great, thank you. You guys covered a lot at your table. All right, our last. This is the last table, right? Everyone else is gone. I think so. This is table in the front. Okay. Thanks. Uh, my name is Rob Henning with ES Partners. First, I'd like to thank my uh, six new best friends for nominating me to speak and take <laughs> notes. <laughs> so we had two pretty, um, pretty broad questions. The first one, if you were in charge of developing food security programs, which components would you prioritize and how? Mm -hmm. So this, we had sort of five elements. I think three are sort of very concrete recommendations. One, the first one was building roads. This is a nod to Bob's comment during his, his, uh, his, his remarks. Second would be sort of build the cooperative marketing organizations or smallholder uh, marketing organizations. Three would be access to capital. So those are sort of the three big components. The, the last two are sort of more questions slash strategic choices. And that was the question around you know, either product diversification versus a focus on staple crops. And this has been a big issue with the Feed the Future programs. Is this almost exclusive sort of focus on uh, the staple crops, which can have big impact in terms of nutrition and, and farmer, farmer incomes? but can lead to monocropping and sort of a, increases the risk of collapse of the entire system. Okay. The last element was you know, the choice between smallholder farmers and commercial farmers. Obviously, everyone wants to focus on the little guy or maybe SMEs and sort of let the commercial farmers sort of do their thing. There's a question there about you know, what will have the biggest impact and what will actually achieve the results that we want. The second question we had was, which stages in the supply chain from farm to fork are the most practical to target in order to reduce post-harvest loss. So I think our initial discussion sort of skipped over the practical part, and we got a very long list. But then we sort of narrowed it down to what's actually practical and what's the most what are the most important elements that can be implemented worldwide. And I think this became a pretty short list. So one is sort of storage for grain and other non-perishables, and this is really moisture management, relatively simple to achieve. And then also controlling for pest and disease. Mm -hmm. So those are sort of the two things. And Great. Keeping it very very narrow. I was going to say only one question, but you know I'm glad you said your second question because I think we haven't talked about post-harvest a lot, um, part post-harvest loss a lot today, and we all know um, what a huge percentage that is and, and how that has to be addressed in order to increase productivity. So wow, great answers! I'm really um, grateful for all of you for doing that exercise. 
Um, what I want to do now is, is provide our panelists five or ten minutes to just do feedback and responses and thoughts on what you just heard. I mean, there was a lot of different topics and a lot of different ideas, um, but if anything struck you that you wanted to add as additional comment or there was another point that you wanted to add to what, what they're discussing. Martin, do you want to start? Yeah, well, one of the things I would like to say is if, if, that, of course, we need, um, we need the big companies to do development on, like we talk, new techniques, mm -hmm. broadly seen. But I think we must be aware of that if the, if the farmers should be in a, somehow of an equal situation with these companies supply these new techniques, whether it's, a, it's new growing techniques, it's new pesticides, it's new uh, varieties and so on, mm -hmm. the farmer needs to be supported by uh, um, um, independent advisory service. Otherwise, I'm sorry to say it, we, 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 we know that the farmer will, will be the will be losing in, in, in that situation. Uh, just an example of, uh, if we look, if I look around in the world and see the, about the use of pesticides, well, there's two ways you can uh, approach that. You can uh, make trials and find out how, how much pesticide will the crop survive on, and you can make trials to see how little pesticide do we actually need to kill off the weeds or the pests. And that's two different ways to look at that. And, I just know that we have to give the farmer a tool so he can look at it the way how little can I use instead of how much can I use not to ruin my crop. I hope you understand my point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Chris, I especially want to hear your thoughts on drones. You mentioned it a little bit in your yeah. opening, but um, any specific comments or thoughts on drone technology? Sure. It, um, that, that hit a chord with me because I think generally it ties into this A point about technology and the fact that agriculture technology is going to evolve, whether people like it or not, whether their traditions or not. So, and I thought about it especially in terms of smallholders. We have to bring everybody along because if not, they're going to be subsumed and in a way they'll be priced out of the market because they won't be able to compete because they won't be using these new technologies. Um, so I think one thing, and you had sort of brought this up earlier about these kind of unique partnerships as these new technologies come along, we have to make sure that everybody not only has equal access to them, but everybody has equal understanding how to use them. So if you're thinking about a smallholder and drones, are they educated? Can they afford one? Do they understand how to use it in terms of these things you were talking about? So I think that's a good example of where some of these unique partnerships, especially with that side of the coin, are going to be very important. Um, and then I, a general thing I got listening to everybody talk was this notion of uh, food security in terms of national or international security. And we, we touched upon that a little, but more specifically what I mean is, you know, if you think about some of these regions of the world that are not food stable or on the verge of not being food stable, I mean, that promotes regional conflict. I think you use civil strife in, in your opening remarks. And there are ways agriculture can solve that. You know, I mean, think about, again, to this unique partnership model. If if the folks in this room were to pick a region of the world that's particularly food unstable, that could become politically or socioeconomically or socially unstable because of that, and then were to go address that particular challenge and then say this model could be grafted onto another part of the world where the same challenge exists, that would be very powerful. 
mean, that would be something that I think <coughs> governments would be interested in, private sector players would be interested in, uh, funding organizations would be fun, uh, interested in. So I think that's another interesting theme for me that came up that I think is worth thinking about. Great, thank you. Bob? Uh, yeah, as I was listening to the group, I thought you had some very, uh, very, very good and uh, substantive discussions. Um, uh, just a couple of reactions at several of the tables. Uh, the first table I spoke of Dan's report. Um, I was really pleased that you all hit trade policy as a potential barrier because almost assuredly we're going to see a larger fraction of world agricultural production move through international markets in the future. Uh, the, the location of where the people are and where the populations are growing is very different than where the bulk of the arable land is uh, or the available fresh water. And so when we have growing populations in dry or land scarce areas who are becoming more affluent and more urban, almost assuredly growth and demand is going to outstrip supply. And then especially we overlay that with climate change with increasing frequency of extreme events that are going to swing crop yields up and down by region. We're going to need trade as sort of the great balancing wheel among regions of the world, especially from year to year as uh, increasing frequency of extreme events uh, uh, occurs. Uh, with Gary Becker's comment about our report, uh, I, I liked your bringing in precision agriculture and, uh, and in general, well, drones was a nice case, but uh, precision agriculture is going to be increasingly important of getting enough inputs into the crop when the crop needs them so that we uh, don't constrain the potential productivity, but also don't put too much on so it runs off into the environment. So better economics and better uh, environmental outcomes are the objective uh, there. <clears throat> uh, water, the water report, Tony, I think it was, uh, only one question I wish you'd have addressed. How are we going to incentivize farmers in the future to use the water they use more, more efficiently? You know, there's huge waste in water when water's priced at zero to most of the world's farmers. I don't underestimate the political challenge of starting to charge for water where there's never been charged for. But if we're going to grow half again as much production using less total water than today, somehow we're going to have to incentivize farmers to use the water they use more efficiently to adopt more water-saving uh, technologies. Uh, on the report in the back table there, uh, talked a lot about knowledge of farmers, uh, access to technology. I wish you'd also mentioned illiteracy. There's still a huge amount of illiteracy. And, you know, to solve the problem of poverty, rural poverty in agriculture, you're going to need uh, minimum literacy to increase the social and economic mobility of the kids growing up in agriculture today. Uh, but uh, to be a good farmer, you're going to need to be literate as well. And uh, when we recognize that the greater frequency of illiteracy among women farmers, and if women grow more than half of the total output, it's a doubly important problem there. And thirdly, uh, nothing brings down fertility rates faster than educating girls. So you've got, you've got a triple win uh, there uh, bringing in that. Um, and uh, on the issue of post-harvest losses, I don't think you mentioned rural electrification. Uh, and with the increasing demand for pr products that are highly perishable, like fruits, vegetables, milk and dairy products, meat, 
as the rapidly growing demand as incomes rise, uh, these are much more perishable than the grains, which are giving us a third post-harvest losses now. We'll have even bigger post-harvest losses if we don't have rural electrification that enables us to process the product closer to the point of production and get it to, to the urban environment. And just think of the challenge of provisioning those mega cities. If 70% of the world's 9.7 billion people in 2050 are living in the cities, uh, it's going to take uh, a lot of attention there. And, uh, and Rad's point about, uh, well, I, I wanted to add to that, uh, to that the, uh, the importance of poverty reduction as well as increasing, increasing agricultural production. We need to increase the availability, but until we solve the, the poverty problem, we can't solve the hunger problem, and that means uh, putting a lot of attention on reducing poverty in rural areas where the majority of it resides, along with uh, raising uh, agriculture production potential. Great. Can you I, tell I just, that he's I, been a professor? I, I, I just want to make a small comment <laughs> yes, on that. If, if, I, I think you're right that the best way to improve productivity in the agriculture sector is giving the women more influence. So I'll just tell you, I'm looking forward to my farm will be a good position with the, the much time I'm spending away from the farm. <laughs> well, uh, women play, have always played an essential role in family farming uh, as full partners. And in many cases, the principal, uh, the, pre the principal manager of the finances. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give our speakers one more chance for any other final comments or thoughts or feedback if you have. We'll start with Chris, go with Martin, and then Bob just do a quick wrap-up, although a lot of your feedback just now was a, was a great way to wrap up. But one more chance, just any other final thoughts or feedback on today's session? Chris. I was really privileged to be a part of this. I think I learned as much from you all listening to you as I and the other panelists as I did being here, so thank you for the opportunity. The only thing I would say, and I, I've repeated it several times, is but do not go forth from the session and tell these things to other people you know in this sector. It doesn't do any good. We have to commit to telling these things to people that are movable and are influenceable. That could mean journalists, that could mean policymakers, that could mean uh, your neighbors, whatever it is. But you have to identify people that have an interest or questions about these topics that we need to move in order to have trade policy changed or regulatory policy changed or partnerships and convince them. We spend a lot of time talking to ourselves and we have to get the message out to other people that generally the advancements we're talking about, whatever advancement you find the most interesting, has to be implemented if we're going to feed 9 billion people. Excellent point. Martin? Yeah, well, I, I think the m most important thing is that um, we're encouraged to cooperation. Uh, that means among, well, from my point of view, of course, the farmers. We, we have seen so much difference around the world. Where have the farmers been able to uh, cooperate? Where have they been able to share knowledge instead of seeing each other as competitors? Where have we been able to see, to get the cooperatives see each other as partners than competitors? Those cooperatives who have been able to merge and, and have been developing their structure like the structure have been developed in the retail sector, they are, they are the ones who, who survive and give their farmers a good, uh, good result. We have to, in any way we can, to, um, to work with clusters uh, 
in all kinds of all all parts of the the, the whole production chain. The, the clusters are really uh, important to uh, to get knowledge spread, and of course we have to work with uh, free trade, as it has been been said. And um, the last thing I I think I will mention is that it's a huge it's a huge challenge for us in the whole sector to to work with the public, to be open-minded, to be honest, uh, to use any opportunity to show our openness, uh, to be able to not only say that we are open, but be, uh, that we should work on really being able to, to get that openness to work so we get in better contact with the, with the citizens in Yemen and our consumers. Because if, if that gap that is between what's going on out in our production to the consumers, if that gap start, uh, keep on growing, it'll be a huge um, uh, uh, it'll be It'll be stopping much of those opportunities. We actually have to use new techniques to solve the, the general problem to feed the world. Great. Okay, well, I've already used or made most of the points that I would have made. I'd just like to uh, close by uh, re-emphasizing a point that uh, Chris uh, mentioned obliquely in his closing comments, and that is the increasing security aspects of the issues we've been discussing this morning of national security, global security. Uh, when we think about food security per se, we really have to think of it at three levels. At the household level, other than in emergency situations, food insecurity is basically associated with poverty. Simply not being able to access available food that's out there. Uh, so if we're gonna solve the hunger problem, the household food insecurity problem, we have to solve the hunger problem, or the poverty problem, which means we need to elevate uh, reducing poverty to almost parity of concern with, uh, with uh, uh, increasing food production. At the global level, uh, what, that's the main thing we've been talking about this morning, I think. Uh, the basic issue is can the world's farmers produce enough more food to feed the world's larger population better than today at reasonable cost without destroying the environment? And I, I want to emphasize the reasonable cost part of that. Uh, because the low-income consumers spend the largest fraction of their income on food, they're the ones who suffer the most if, uh, if food prices uh, go into a long-term rise. You know, Malthus has been wrong for more than two centuries because he underestimated the power of productivity growth in agriculture to outstrip population growth. He, he said, Starvation will eventually limit the size of the world's population because food production can't keep up with population growth. He was wrong simply because he didn't understand or appreciate the, the, the potential for productivity growth, which resulted from investments in research, investments in rural infrastructure, and so on. There's no more reason for Malthus to be, continue to be, to, there's no more reason for Malthus to be right in the 21st century than in the 20th or 19th but he'll only continue to be wrong if we get agriculture back onto the global agenda and, uh, and make the necessary investments to increase food production in uh, low-income countries around the world. We in the high-income countries can't do it all. Uh, we certainly have some greater production potential, but not enough more to, to, to generate the increased availability uh, that it's going to take. But Resources flowing into international agricultural development peaked in the 1980s, mid-80s, went into steep decline. 
from the World Bank lending, from foreign aid programs, from national budgets in developing countries, and only uh, began to turn the corner after the early part, or the beginning of this century, reinforced by the price spike in 2008 and again 11. Uh, but commodity prices are extremely low right now in world markets. Too many people are once again thinking, as Martin suggested, that we had the job done, that we're worried about surpluses dragging down the prices rather than uh, producing enough food. And we have to be extremely careful we don't fall into an apathetic situation once again and uh, allow agriculture to move off the development agenda. You can't turn agriculture research on or off from one year to the next. You've got to have sustained commitment uh, to do the research if it's going to be ready when we need it. There's a gestation period usually of eight to ten years from research initiation to having a product ready for farm, ready to go to, for farmers. If we don't sustain that commitment, uh, we, will be, we will lose a great deal. The third level at which, uh, at which uh, we have to talk about food security besides the household and the global level, the national level, food is strategic to every government. Nothing will bring down a government faster than hungry people. And so every, every government has to be concerned that there be a safe, reliable, reasonably cost, nutritious supply of food available 365 days a year from some combination of domestic production and imports. Uh, and every government then has to decide what fraction of that domestic uh, consumption can we afford to rely on the world market to supply. Uh, lack of comparative advantage in some dry countries, for example, means that they'll have a much greater dependence. But uh, I guess the implication of this to me is the geopolitics of food are in rapid change today. And as we move forward in the coming decades, it's going to become even more and more interesting. So I really appreciate all of your participation this morning. I think we've had a rich discussion. And I particularly want to thank Kimberly Flowers for causing this to happen. It was her idea together uh, with Anna DeComa. Uh, and uh, we've, uh, we're all in their debt for stimulating uh, uh, this discussion. <laughs>